0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and here we will be in Acts chapter 27, which is where Paul sails for Rome. There is a storm while he is out at sea, and there is a shipwreck. We are also blessed in this episode to introduce you to Trevor Lawrence. He will introduce himself in just a moment during the show, but all of the links to the Cataclesia Institute and his work can be found in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And Here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, James B. John, and Trevor Lawrence discussing Acts 27.
1: Welcome to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, James B. John and Brian Moats in the background running the recording. Today we also have a special guest, Trevor Lawrence, who's joining us from Winston Salem, North Carolina. Trevor is the founder and executive director of the Cataclesia Institute. He's a ruling elder at Trinity Church in Winston Salem, North Carolina. Uh, he studied at Gordon Conwell Seminary and uh, recently finished his PhD work at Exeter University, uh, work on the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, and Trevor is also involved in a project that has to do with biblical hermeneutics and violence. Uh, so welcome, Trevor. It's good to have you. Have you joined us for this uh, episode and hopefully the next one as well.
2: Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Cataclesia Institute before you before we begin our uh, discussion today?
2: Yeah. Um, the Cataclesia Institute was birthed out of the excitement, the discovery, the enthusiasm uh, generated by my doctoral studies. uh, As I uh, dug deeper into scripture, I found that pressing into the details revealed a symphonic unity and a beauty uh, that was more staggering than I had previously imagined, and that was really all-encompassing. It had the power to reshape human existence in the world. Uh, And from that, I helped launch the Cataclesia Institute, and our primary mission is to cultivate Biblical imagination uh, alongside the academy and the church. So that means that we want to produce scholarly uh, resources, as well as church-facing accessible resources uh, that help people instinctively navigate the story of the Bible Uh, And consequently, to navigate God's world according to that story as well.
1: So what kinds of things do you do? uh, What what does the Institute do to pursue those aims?
2: Currently, we release weekly articles from uh, scholars around the world and myself that are uh, hitting on various aspects of biblical imagination. Uh, whether it's biblical theology, liturgical formation, or theologically informed ethics. uh, It's also provided uh, an academic home for me to pursue outside projects, whether that's uh, publishing scholarly articles, working on books, or uh, hosting uh, and moderating conferences that bring scholars together to do some of this important work, uh, digging into the details of Scripture.
1: Yeah, that's very exciting. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about your uh, work in your doctoral work, uh, dissertation.
2: Yeah, uh, a few years ago, I had the unenviable task, perhaps, of preaching an imprecatory psalm as we were walking through the Psalter. Uh, and I found myself utterly confused. Uh, and a lot of the scholarly treatments, um, as responsible as they were seeking to be, uh, left me a little bit underwhelmed. Uh, So I spent three years working very closely with the Imprecatory Psalms, trying to understand how they fit into the developing story of the Bible, uh, how they point forward in various ways to the person and work of Jesus, and ultimately how the church, who inhabits the story of God laid out in Scripture, can take those up as a faithful embrace of the royal and priestly vocation that we have as God's kingdom of priests in Jesus Christ.
1: What were some of the surprising or unique insights you came to from the, uh, from the work?
2: I can think of uh, two off the top of my head. Uh, one was how elusive uh, the imprecatory Psalms are to other parts of Scripture, And these allusions or echoes of earlier parts of the story are not insignificant, they're not tangential, they're not for stylistic flair, but they actually import the story of God into the psalm in a way that situates the action and the request that's going on, Uh, not least references to the beginning of Genesis uh, and the proto-evangelium of Genesis 3.15 with the promise of a seed of the woman, who will ultimately defeat the seed of the serpent. That type of narrative action is brought into the fabric of the impregatory psalms, and I argue uh, it it provides a a narrative legitimation, a story that makes sense of the prayers of the Son of God, the royal priest, um, who is waging war in prayer against the serpentine enemy who is infiltrating the temple kingdom of god
1: very neat you're involved in a project on hermeneutics and violence what's the what's the aim of that
2: yes that's a a three-year project with the institute for biblical research Uh, i'm working alongside helen painter who is the director of the center for the study of bible and violence in bristol england Um, And we are trying to bring together uh, scholars and papers uh, in a conference setting over the course of three years who are utilizing different hermeneutical lenses to tackle the confusion and the problems that are raised uh, by uh, violence in Scripture. So just uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we had our first session, our first year with this project where Uh, Five scholars uh, brought together work utilizing speech act theory, Uh, and in future years, we're going to take up uh, concepts of satire, humor, and subversion, and then in year three, uh, intertextuality and biblical illusion uh, as ways of informing how we approach biblical violence responsibly.
1: Well, all very interesting stuff, and uh, we're we're really glad to have you today. Uh, we we invited you to join us uh, after James B. John, one of our regulars, uh, noted that you had uh, said on uh, somewhere on social media that you had pages of notes on Acts twenty seven and twenty eight, preparing for an article at some future date. So uh, James latched onto that. We latched onto you, and we're glad to have you joining us for the discussion today.
2: Yeah, it's an unexpected surprise but a welcome one nonetheless.
1: Yeah. Well, let me let me set things up. We are as uh, as those of you who are regular listeners know, we're in the middle ra- rather we're toward the end of our studies in the book of Acts. Uh, this has been going on for some months. And uh we're in Acts 27 today and we're going to try to cover Acts 27 and then the early part of Acts 28 which is a uh, seems to be kind of the conclusion to that narrative of Paul's journey. This is the this is the story of Paul's Voyage from uh, Caesarea to Rome, or uh, ultimately, uh, he'll ultimately get to Rome. But we're going to take him to Malta, as uh, in the text we'll talk about in this in this episode. It's basically a, a sea yarn, a complicated story, and there's just so much, so much going on here. It'd be nice to have an entire uh, series of episodes on this uh, on this chapter. We're going to try to cover it in an overview. So much biblical background, such a rich biblical background. But also, uh, as many scholars have noted, there's uh, allusions to various ancient uh, epics and sh- accounts of shipwrecks. Uh, the the uh, phrase that's usually identified as being a Homeric phrase uh, is the uh, statement that the ship ran aground late in chapter 27. Uh, and the particular phrasing is found in the Odyssey when Odysseus runs aground, I think, in the on the island of the Phaeacians. Uh, it's not his final voyage, but it's the shipwreck that leads him to the this island where non-Greeks welcome him as Paul is welcomed to Malta, uh, and he's taken care of and then launched on another ship to go on home. So there's a, kind of an Odysseus epic story. I think the Aeneid is at play here, maybe more the Aeneid than the Odyssey. Uh, the Odyssey is a Gnostic. It's a homecoming story where uh, Odysseus is trying to get home from the Trojan War back to his home in Ithaca. And the Aeneid, uh takes up that same idea of a voyage, but Aeneas is not heading home; he's leaving his home and heading for a new place, which seems to be closer to what Paul's up to in this story. Uh, just a comment on the the way the story is put together in chapter twenty-seven. Before we uh, jump into it, it seems like the the story is punctuated particularly by speeches of Paul. We have the the departure at the beginning of the chapter, and then the ship uh, meets uh, bad weather, and then in verse verses uh, 9 and 10, Paul speaks for the first time when they're in harbor, and he suggests that they don't try to continue. I perceive that the voyage will be certainly attended with damage and great loss, he says in verse 10. They go ahead and continue the voyage anyway, and what Paul says comes to pass, and there's a a big storm, and they're in huge trouble. That section continues on to verse 20, uh, which ends with, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned so it leaves them in despair and then Paul speaks again but this time he's received a vision an angel has appeared to him uh, and he uh, speaks of uh, he speaks an encouraging message tells them that they shouldn't lose heart that they will in fact be uh, rescued that God has granted all of them to Paul uh, that's an interesting turn of phrase that we'll want to talk about and then of course Paul's just as Paul's earlier warning comes to pass so his his encouragement now comes to pass, and they actually do make landfall. In the midst of that, uh, before they come aground on an island, which is what Paul predicts will happen, there's a third speech of Paul, which uh, takes place when they are 14 days into the into this particular phase of the journey, and he encourages them to take food. And you have this kind of Eucharistic scene where he breaks bread, gives thanks. He takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it and distributes it and you have 276 persons on the ship that partake of this kind of quasi-Eucharistic meal. Uh, so th- those speeches of Paul, followed by the events that he predicts, uh, seem to be structuring the phases of the story. And I think the the other thing, if we can conclude the the addition in chapter 28, the other thing I wanted to say at the beginning is, I said before we started that we should uh, say the word Advent a few times, because this is we're recording this during Advent. But I think this actually does fit, because Paul appears on Malta to the barbarians on Malta uh, first of all they perceive him as uh, perhaps a murderer somebody who's just escaped from the sea he he gets rescued from the sea and then a viper bites him so somebody's after him some nemesis is after him but then he shakes off the viper into the fire and then they consider him a god so the people of Malta uh, treat him as if he were a, a divine visitation which of course in fact he is and that's one of the major themes that we've seen throughout the book of acts that the apostles are a kind of second coming of jesus their lives are being shaped by the life of jesus they're reliving reliving the the life uh, ministry death and resurrection of jesus in all kinds of ways throughout the book of acts and paul's arrival on malta and eventual arrival in rome is like another advent of the christ another advent of jesus coming to proclaim the gospel so just uh, a few a few uh, suggestions to get us rolling. Well, perhaps we can think about
3: the big picture here first, Peter. Um, Why does Luke decide that he's going to cap off his book with this long uh, narrative of a sea journey and a shipwreck? Um, You know, when people think about the book of Acts, they generally think about, you know, Acts 2 and the story of Pentecost. But that's not even the longest story narrated in the book. Acts 27 is longer and more detailed even than Acts 2. Um, so what, what's what's the point of coming to the end of the book with this particular story? Uh, I mean,
4: big picture kind of uh, question is what questions I have in mind. Throughout Luke's two works, he's put a lot of attention upon journeys um, in contrast to the synoptic gospels other than Luke. Um, he has, I think, 33% of um, the gospel is journey towards Jerusalem, whereas in Matthew and Mark, it's 8 and 6%. He spends an awful lot of the book of Acts with Paul's journey, his three missionary journeys, and then his journey as a prisoner towards Rome. He also has key events happening upon journeys, the road to Emmaus or the path On which the Ethiopian eunuch is met by Philip or the story of Paul going towards Saul going towards Damascus and the encounter on the road. In each of these occasions, there's something about the theology that is conveyed through the form of the journey and having the story come to its climax within a journey, I think is appropriate. As is the fact that I think this is structured according to the pattern of the book of Luke, the two panels of these two books match onto each other and the shipwreck corresponds to previous events within the gospel. I've
3: noticed that in teaching through this and preaching through this with people, that's kind of the big question in their mind. Why all this detail uh, about the sea and the wind and the cities that they visited? And one of my answers just in terms of big picture answers is that you know we're kind of now fully into Gentile territory we've left Jerusalem, we're on our way to Rome, and we are out at sea. And the sea, of course, is about the Gentiles, and Paul's headed to Rome. That's maybe a, a very broad brush, but at least it helps people to understand what's going on here. You know, Paul's taken plenty of uh, sea journeys in the two decades of his ministry so far, but none of them are covered in, with this kind of detail. And so, um, at least theologically, on, on, on the, the big picture is, all right, now we're moving it in Gentile territory. The other thing I'd say is, is to uh, <clears throat> piggyback on what Alistair just said, is this connection with the end of uh, Jesus' story, uh, end of Luke, is pretty prominent here. You know, before Paul is going to symbolically die in the sea and then uh, be resurrected on the island of Malta, he takes bread. Uh, in a Passover-like scene, he takes bread and gives thanks for it, distributes it to the people. So there, there are um, there's there's all sorts of things going on here, but um, this appears to be the culmination of Paul's ministry. To culmination, maybe it's not the best word, but a, a really striking kind of way to to say how Paul is imitating the life of. Christ, as he says in some of his letters, um, he imitates the life of Christ, and the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, and bringing the gospel into these uh, new Gentile worlds.
2: I agree. I think that's a an incredibly important controlling motif uh, throughout these latter chapters. We could add several other details as well. Paul, like Jesus, is accompanied by other prisoners. Uh, There is the presence of a sympathetic centurion. We've mentioned the Eucharistic meal. Uh, Paul basically quotes Jesus when he tells the men that not a hair of your head will perish. We've got a death and resurrection through the water onto life in the land. There's even a lack of recognition that's reminiscent of the disciples on the road to Emmaus as uh, the sailors fail to recognize the land before them. There's victory over a serpent and ultimately a vindication as uh, Paul goes from being called a murderer to being associated with divinity, uh, which, of course, we see in the vindication of Jesus uh, at the cross and resurrection.
1: Yeah, I think the the journey motif is is significant, as Alistair was saying. Uh, I think the... The, the curious or illuminating thing is to, if you set Luke and Acts side by side, as Alistair suggested we should do, and we, we've kind of assumed that throughout our studies, uh, that Luke and Acts run parallel to each other. Uh, but the journey, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is paralleled by Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Uh, but Paul goes out the other side of Jerusalem. Jesus finishes in Jerusalem, and as far as... uh. Uh, Luke is concerned, the apostles, the Luke's gospel is concerned, Paul's, uh, Jesus' disciples finish in Jerusalem. But then Paul leaves Jerusalem. And what corresponds really to this part of the book of Acts is Jesus' passion. Uh, You have the the, the trials that Paul goes through in the preceding chapters, which correspond to the trials of Jesus. Then Jesus goes to the cross. Instead of going to the cross, Paul gets on a boat. That's the correspondence. So uh, the thing that we need to think about is how, as somebody's already alluded to, that this is a this is a story of death and resurrection for Paul,
2: and that really does put narrative meat on the bones of Jesus' call to take up the cross and follow Him. Not only in Luke, but throughout the New Testament, and Paul gets to it specifically. There is a suffering with Jesus that only after the suffering is accompanied by vindication and glory with Jesus. And we see in the shape of Luke's narrative that Paul really is embodying in his own flesh the death and resurrection, the suffering and the vindicating glory of his Lord. There's something there for us to hold on to uh, as the church moves through the world as the body of Christ.
5: Just pick up on something Jeff mentioned in reference to the Passover, we, we have got a number of Exodus like themes here. There are a Deliverance through water and um, strong wind, the darkness, the disappearance of the sun and moon. There's even the, the mention of the fourteenth night and the phrase "about midnight," which is t- distinctly um, Exodus-esque. And if if that's the case, if we've got that going on here, I, I think one of its significant um, implications is that it puts Israel, I guess, and Jerusalem, kind of on the wrong side um, of the. Waters, if, if you like, it's, it's left behind in an Egypt-like um, status, while Paul kind of goes forth to new territory with the riches of, of Israel. I guess, sort of taking the uh, the gospel into new lands. So it seems to have a uh, a negative implication as far as J- Jerusalem is concerned. That that particular Exodus event, Luke seems to use the
4: imagery of the sea very differently from the other Gospels. Um, one of the things that really stands out to me is the fact that each of the Gospels, apart from Luke, mentions the sea in the context of the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberius. Whereas in Luke, he always calls it the Lake of Gennesaret or just the lake. It's a very different representation of that body of water. And all these themes that are associated in the other Gospels with the lake, with the uh, um, Storm on the boat, all these sorts of things are awaiting this later point in his narrative where they'll come into fuller expression. And the sea stands for a number of different aspects of the forces of the world at their most elemental. The sea is something that can't be tamed. Um, You can think about the sea as a representation of the Gentiles and the Gentile nations. And behind this story, I think, is among other things, have the sign of the prophet Jonah associated with Christ's death and resurrection as if from the deep. And now you have a story again with a prophet leaving the land of Israel, going towards the west on a ship with a storm. And now, rather than him being thrown overboard in order that the others might be safe, he, has, he stays on the ship and the others must stay on the ship to be safe with him. So there's a reversal of that theme, and also a movement out towards the Gentiles as Jonah was moving out towards the city of Nineveh eventually. And within that, I think that contrast is worthy of exploration. And also, it invites us, I think, to see something more going on here. This is not just something interesting that happened. I mean, Paul's had three shipwrecks already that Luke has not recounted. Um, This is not a new experience for Paul. Um, But it is something that within the structure of the story invites us to reflect upon how it illumines the themes of the book as a whole.
1: And I think the Jonah reference uh, kind of reinforces what uh, what, uh, James was saying. We have uh, Israel on the wrong side. They're the Egypt now of the Exodus story that's going on. Uh, and you have something of that going on with the with the Jonah typology too. Uh, in one sense, the story concludes with this new Jonah arriving on Malta, being received hospitably. And you ta- you have this Eucharist with the with the sailors on board the ship. We know from Jonah that the sh- the sailors on board his ship uh, actually sacrifice and worship Yahweh. How strongly we should take it here is a question. Uh, but we have a, a kind of salvation, a, a salvific motif for the sailors, and also for the people of Malta. But then, in the subsequent, in the, in the next chapter, as we'll talk about in the in the next episode. Instead of going on to Gentiles and preaching to Romans, Paul's back with the Jews, and they don't accept him. So it's uh, there, I think there's an interesting twist on the whole Jonah story. There is a trajectory toward Gentile, but that gets uh, sidetracked into a final, a final encounter with uh, with Jews.
5: Jeff raised the question of why we've got so many details here, and I'm not sure I have a particularly good answer, but I think one thing it does do is kind of stop us making a dichotomy between symbolism and history. So we've touched on all sorts of symbolism in this event, but at the same time it is just packed with details and specific terms and locations and measurements and so forth, and it is clearly meant to um, recount, and does so accurately, an actual historical journey with all the right details in the right places um, and, and yet at the same time full of symbolism. And so it's, it's a great example of how those two things can, can come together in biblical narratives.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: So this is a story about
3: salvation and that, that theme of salvation, rescue, deliverance pretty much dominates here. You have the the verb sozo to save used seven times and at key junctures in this passage, um, and it's, it's like the gospel told through the story of a sea journey, not just through an evangelistic discourse or a sermon. I mean, we might have expected that, uh, Luke would end his story, get to the end of his scroll or near the end of the scroll and just maybe include a long sermon from Paul, maybe, uh, one of his best, but it doesn't do that. Um, and so this is in, Story form, as we meant, a real, as as uh, James just said, a real history, but also a very symbolic uh, understanding of. Though well, this is how this is how the Roman Empire, the ship of state, it's a very common symbol, of course, uh, in the ancient world for an organized community of people. Within the ship, you have a big you know, family, a state, a ship of state. So this is how the world's going to be saved. And if we think about that question, then we see an interesting, I think lots of interesting facts here about Paul uh, being, you know, a uh, an instance of the church and having a prophetic role here, an advisory role, and how the people on the ship either don't listen to him or do listen to him and their, their fortunes, their, uh, their their escape their deliverance depending on how they uh, respond to Paul which is surely I think for Luke a you know a, a little picture of the church's function in the Roman world uh, to be a source of life and health and peace and wisdom and advice in times of crisis um, and remember we we said all along this is what the Jews were supposed to be in Rome, but they failed miserably. And now Paul, um, as a representative of the church, is stepping into that role in a um, in, in a great way here in this story.
4: One of the things picking up on Jeff's comment that I think is helpful, he discusses the ship as the ship of state. On the sea, you come face to face with the limits of human power. It's a realm of providence. In the book of Jonah, I think one of, The helpful details of the book that James Jordan has brought up is the way that it represents the situation of the nation. You have the nations of the region represented by the pagan sailors. You have the unfaithful Jewish prophet that is going on the ship. And then this turmoil in the ocean that's around about them is a representation of the political situation, the international situation. And now the church and the state are on these waters of providence in the chaos that surrounds them. It's a realm where you see the power of God over the forces, not just of nature, but the forces of society, the forces of international politics, of conflict. And that twofold representation, I think, is drawn over from the book of Jonah. And it's something that's also developed in the Gospels as Jesus teaches from a boat or acts in a boat in a way that represents the boat as the church or the society and brings that into direct correspondence with the realm of God's providence.
2: I think it's fruitful to press into that Jonah typology following up on these comments even further. In some ways, the, the divergencies, as we've mentioned, between Paul and Jonah are as important as the similarities. Jonah is an unfaithful prophet who embodies Israel's refusal to be a light to the nations. Uh, Ultimately, he is thrown into the sea as Israel is thrown into the sea of the nations. Uh, But Paul is faithful throughout. He is committed to taking the gospel uh, to the heart of Rome. Uh, He's not thrown into the sea, but instead remains in the boat and delivers the whole ship with him. And here, I think if we, if we press into the Jonah as Israel, Paul as church, uh, typology, we see that Paul is obeying Israel's commission in a way that even Israel failed to do. In some ways, he's recapitulating the story of Israel and Israel's prophet, but he's succeeding, uh, in all of the ways that Israel rebelled. I think we see that in the Moses Typology as well. Uh, Paul is Moses leading an exodus of Gentiles. And once he gets on the land, we find that uh, unlike the Israelites who murmured against Moses, Paul is received with honor upon honor. He's called a God. He's welcomed with hospitality. In each of these places, uh, Paul and then the Gentiles as well are taking Israel's place in the story and they're doing it better than the covenant people of God. And I can't help but think that this is intentional on Luke's part. Uh, In chapter 28, he tells us that Paul seeks to convince the Jews from the law of Moses and the prophets. And it seems that in some way Luke is doing that in his narrative as well. He's taking the law of Moses and then the prophets and showing that Paul is living into their story fulfilling the commission of Israel uh, in a way that Israel has failed to do. In some ways, uh, he is calling Israel, by his very narrative shape, to join in.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Trevor. Uh, That's something that uh, I suggested a couple of times during our discussion of Paul's uh, trials, uh, and particularly of his trial before Agrippa, uh, where he uh, talks about the his mission to open, open eyes so that people can turn from darkness to light. He himself is the light of Christ in the courtroom of Agrippa, uh, which is, that is the that is the vocation of Israel. He's being a true Israelite. He's got this Israelite heritage, this Hebrew heritage. But beyond that, he's actually fulfilling the the Israelite um, uh, vocation to the Gentiles. But I wanted also to add, I mean, there's the obvious note you, you were uh, suggesting a connection between the, the time on Malta and the sojourn in the wilderness, and the obvious link there is Paul. Paul is a guy who goes out gathering sticks for a fire, uh, which is a wilderness incident. Snake bite is something that happens in the wilderness. Paul doesn't get sick from the snake bite. He's not breaking Sabbath by gathering sticks. Uh, so that's those are just a couple of details that fit with that uh, that typology you suggest.
2: Yes, in Numbers, we're told that. They are fiery serpents. And for Paul, it's a serpent that comes out of the fire.
4: (laughs) Yeah. And back in. (laughs) Also in the connection of picking up sticks. And Moses is one who picks up a rod or who throws down a rod. It becomes a serpent and picks it up and it becomes a rod. Mm. Yeah.
1: Uh, What do you all think about? uh, We've talked some about in general about the details of the story. I think James's point is. Is uh, an important one uh, that this is it, this is the way you tell a sea story because you got you got a lot of details about how uh, you know the strategies that a, a captain would use to try to avoid bad weather and so on. Any other thoughts about the? I mean, you have discussion of the winds, you have discussion of the tackle, you have discussion of sailing tactics. Uh, any other thoughts on uh, Luke's intentions beyond what James has already mentioned? Why would he why would include that level of detail about the? the operation of the ship itself.
5: I think Alistair's comment about the ship as a picture of a a state or individuals subjected to the uh, vagaries and unpredictability of of the world and tossed to and fro, um, I think that might be helpful here because from verse perhaps 9 or 10 onwards, there is just this sort of um, systematic removal of everything which the people on board might normally have thought to rely upon so mm-hmm. initially paul gives the warning and then uh they choose to pay more attention at first 11 to the pilot and the owner than to what paul had said which i guess on the face of it wasn't an unreasonable thing to do um but then progressively everything that they try um goes wrong so initially the pilot's expertise is sort of come, comes unstuck um through this sort of a sequence of winds and then they try and drop anchors and that doesn't achieve much. And then in verse seventeen, um they hoist anchors and try something else. Um later in verse eighteen they jettison the cargo and and, and then, you know, they finally they are at the end of their tether at verse twenty. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Uh, and that's when I guess they um Turn back to Paul, which has sort of it is slightly a humiliating option in in a sense. They are the experts, and now they have to recourse to this guy who is a, a criminal and a prisoner on board, and his source of knowledge is um, a, a revelation from an angel. You know, so I, I think there is here just a uh, yeah a removal of all sort of common earthly wisdom, and and finally mm. that. At the end of their tether, um, and they turn to God's wisdom.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point. And pa- Paul does um, rub it in a bit.
4: Uh, you should have followed my advice, he says in verse twenty-one. I think there's also the fact Luke's there. The passages where Luke is present on the journeys of Paul tend to have a lot more detail because he's a first-hand witness. Here we have also a number of details that I think are brought forward in order to highlight certain of the, the themes. Um, so the way that Paul breaks the bread or blesses it, the way that the um, food is cast overboard before the morning. Um, these sorts of things, I think, are highlighting certain of the um, typological themes and symbolic themes that are going on. Beyond that, I think it just gives a sense of the real world context of what is occurring this is a situation where for much of the period of time from september to late february you couldn't really sail on the mediterranean save in the southeast it was you would be subject to really bad conditions you'd have um mists you wouldn't be able to see the sun and other things that would enable you to navigate you would have storms and the whole situation of being on a boat is one that i think you need to have that real world context to bring out the some of the spiritual parallels um and the conditions here that are described, very carefully charting a course to be on the lee side of the islands, the way in which they're trying to avoid the sandbars of the surtis, um, recognising that they need to protect the hull from breaking up, removing the ship's boat, all these sorts of measures are things that help us to recognise that the Church, although you have these neat, theological and symbolic patterns taking place all of this is taking place within the urgency and the immediacy of a storm at sea in situations that were treacherous the fast has passed they're past the um, the day of atonement and things are looking a bit hairy for them to stay at fair havens is not going to be a good place to winter and so they want to go on to this new place and that is not accessible in the end. They get blown off course. And in all of these ways, you're having a sense of its rootedness in the real world and the urgency and the immediacy of the events and the little decisions that have to be made, but also the way in which God's overarching purpose is playing out within these deep patterns that are um, seen even in the chaos of a um, storm at
2: sea. I think along with that, the the chaos of the storm draws into relief Paul's response. While the winds are raging and the sailors are doing everything in their power to regain control, uh, we find Paul uh, relying on the promise of God and laying down a Eucharistic meal. Uh, and, and I think uh, here we have to see Uh, Something of the witness of the church amid the raging of the nations and amid all of the vicissitudes of life in this very real and unpredictable world. The gospel uh, communicated in God's promises and in the sacraments create a community, a people uh, with a remarkable capacity for equanimity and strength and stability uh, in the midst of chaos. Paul uh, is able to look beyond his own needs and take care of others with compassion. He's able to exercise practical wisdom and say that these men, if they're going to do their job, need to be sustained with nourishment. That doesn't mean that for the church, suffering isn't sometimes completely destabilizing. It doesn't mean that there isn't a place for lament and crying out to God. But it does mean that the promises of God in word and sacrament have a capacity to change the way we approach suffering, embrace suffering, and respond to suffering uh, in a a way that glorifies God and ultimately is good for us and those around us.
1: Yeah, I really like James's comment about the the gradual abandonment of all the... uh all their supports, the the normal things that would get them through to where they're trying to go. Uh, and I think that fits uh, what seems to me a, a, a series of allusions to Luke 21, which is Luke's version of the uh, uh, Olivet Discourse and the end of the age. I'm thinking particularly of verse 20, which uh, James called attention to. He he, he mentioned the last part, uh, hope, uh, our hope of being saved was gradually abandoned. But before that, uh, neither sun nor stars. A couple of you have mentioned this. None or, neither sun nor stars appear for many days. No small storm was assailing us. Uh, in in Luke twenty one twenty five, the sun and the stars are mentioned as as going out. Jesus talks somewhat strangely about the waves of the sea roaring in that passage. Uh, so you have this combination of sea and astronomical imagery descri- that's uh, marking the end of the age. Uh, when Paul speaks. Uh, Uh, Later on, verse 34, this is in the middle of the speech he gives to encourage them to eat. He says, not a hair from your head will perish, which is what Jesus promises those in the Olivet Discourse in in Luke 21. I don't have the verse in front of me. But this is an apocalyptic voyage. All the supports are being pulled out. And I think, you know, you can think about this a couple of ways. You can think, this is the ship of state. uh, And the, the, uh, the ship of state is Being dismantled as Jesus predicted, and yet Paul's going to bring it safely through. The ship might be broken up on the uh, by the waves, but Paul's going to get the people through to dry land, and they're going to be preserved. Uh, But I think you have a a kind of symbolic apocalypse uh, that's that's coming on Judaism uh, as Jesus. That's the focus of Jesus' uh, sermon in uh, Luke twenty-one. But also, it's the end of the age in some sense for the Roman Empire. There's this this whole system. That includes both Rome and Israel. That system is coming to an end. Now that's all being signified here by the, uh, by the storm at sea and the, the various apocalyptic notes. And this has to be encouraging for
3: Christians in any age to read this if we have these um, symbolic markers, you know, and we at least get some of that, to realize that, hey, this is our vocation. In times of crisis, whether it's a crisis in the city or a larger community, uh, we've been situated by God into this providential situation in order that our presence might deliver people, people, not necessarily the system. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, in America right now, um, everybody seems so concerned about the Constitution and about our system of government, and yet, you know, at some point it's all gonna pass away. And yet as for Christians, we need to be here for people, interceding for them, uh giving wise advice and counsel based on God's word. You know, Paul says three times, do this and you will live. Um and so I think it's it, it should be encouraging for it's it's a lot like, isn't it? I think we've already made this illusion, I think Trevor did. It's a lot like what Jeremiah told the people of Israel to do once they were exiled in the Babylon, you know, seek the good of the city, you know, uh, be faithful, um, build houses, raise families, and and watch out for the people around you, because your presence there is supposed to bring life and deliverance, salvation.
2: Jeff, following up on that, if we press the Passover motif uh, all the way through to chapter 28, we see that Uh, This Passover and Exodus and wilderness journey is headed not toward Canaan, but to Rome. And we could make a lot of observations about that, but at very least it means that that is where the church belongs. As Israel was to settle in the promised land, so the church is moving to the, the center of imperial power. And though they are aliens and exiles, strangers in a strange land, nevertheless they are precisely where god intends them to be
1: i am going to try to provoke uh, james to uh, uh to a uh, a riff on something okay. i am okay.
5: intrigued to know what i'm going to provoke okay. to do <laughs> uh,
1: it's a chronological point i wonder if you have any thoughts on uh how we should uh how we should uh, assess this you've got the the fast verse 9 is already over uh which uh, as alistair has already alluded to it seems like the fast of the Day of Atonement. You've got a 14-day period following that that's described. Uh, and you have a number of, a number of uh, specific um, uh, markers. There's the next day something happened, and then on the third day something happened, and then uh, for many days something happened, and then it had been for 14 days, and they were being driven in the Adriatic. And then Paul says, you, you've been without food for 14 days. So there are these chronological markers. I wonder if you had any thoughts mm-hmm. on... Uh, you've got these Passover motifs, but uh, if we're if we're talking about Day of Atonement, we're in the seventh month rather than the first. Are we Are we looking at something that's more in the zone of uh, the Feast of Booths, perhaps?
5: may have to disappoint you, I think, Peter. <laughs> I mean, I I possibly have some obscure thoughts. I mean, um, something that strikes me about um, the Jewish calendar is that there is kind of a symmetry to it, or at least it's broken into two six-monthly cycles. So in the first month, Nisan, you have the Passover on the 14th, and four days before, you have the 10th when you prepare uh, prepare the Passover lamb. Um, similarly, in the seventh month, um, you have the Tabernacles on the evening of the 14th, and then beforehand on you have Yom Kippur on the 10th when you sort of prepare. Uh, and so you have a similar six-monthly cycle and on the third of each month you have something. You have Pentecost on the third month and then you have Hanukkah in in the ninth month. So there's this kind of symmetry to the year and that's reflected in the fact that um, there were kind of two yearly cycles in Israel. So king's reigns are generally reckoned from autumn to autumn, like from the seventh month to the seventh month, which is kind of civil year and then there is a a religious year um as well like a a nissan to nissan year and um, by sort of merging together i guess the the, um yom kippur type imagery with passover type imagery i I wonder if you have these two years coming together and if so I, i i wonder if that's um uh alluding to kind of the idea of a, a kingly year and a priestly year um being met together and things being united you have, even have this image in the chapter of um, uh, a reef where two streams of water rush together and, and, and come into one um point and I, I don't know if there's something something to that at least in the chronology that you've got a, a blending of different feasts here on that front it's interesting noting that the day of Un- or the feast
4: of unleavened bread and the feast of tabernacles both connect- commemorate something that occurred on the same day—the um, making of the unleavened bread and the dwelling in Sukkoth immediately after they leave. Ramses, it's the same day.
3: Well, someone needs to give us the esoteric understanding—the <clears throat> mystery of two hundred and seventy-six persons in verse thirty-seven. Um it's a it is a triangular number uh, when, uh just as 153 is a triangular number from um that's John 21 where the uh I think it was Peter who pulled in that many fish. Um uh, so why are we given that number? What's the deal? Mm.
5: 666 is also a triangular number actually or all, all the large um sort of non-round numbers in the in the New Testament are triangular. I mean, um again, this is a complete guess, but two hundred and seventy-six is the twenty-third um triangular mm-hmm. number. And that may play on the fact, you know, um Passover is the night of the fourteenth and Yom Kippur is the um night of the ninth. And so sort of combining those two um nights you have a twenty-third um There is another triangular number in Acts, which is actually a
4: round number, um, 120. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Maybe we could think of it as 24 minus 1 as well. Um, We have the 12 minus 1 at the beginning with the lack of Judas. Maybe there's 24 minus 1 here. I believe uh, Goulder
3: in his book uh, makes a big deal about it not being a – 24 triangular number, but I can't remember why.
2: It would seem that would fit the emphasis on the the gentilic identity of the people who are being delivered. Uh, 24 as a multiple of 12 carries connotations of Israel. Perhaps 24 minus 1 is just one more detail that draws to the foreground the fact that this is not Israel. It is the nations who are occupying the story of Israel and the continuation of God's redemption throughout the earth
1: apart from the uh, specifics of the number you have a feeding and then a number of people that's identified which uh, brings it into the zone of uh, miraculous feedings in the in the gospels i wonder uh, I, maybe you could close on this question uh, a lot of discussion about uh, in the commentaries about how to take this quasi eucharistic meal everyone almost everyone recognizes that there's some kind of play on a eucharistic action Taking, giving thanks, breaking, eating. Uh, but the question that uh, is debated is: uh, What what are we to make of that? Is this is this actually a Eucharistic meal, or is it just a common meal modeled on the Eucharist? Uh, is this implies something about the status of the two hundred seventy six who partake? Uh, their status before God. Is it uh, some kind of universalist hint? That Paul is willing to share a Eucharist with um, prisoners, uh, soldiers, sailors, everyone who's on board, regardless of their profession. Or should we take uh, God's promise that he's giving all of these to Paul uh, s- more strongly and suggest that uh, uh, maybe maybe like uh, Jonah's sailors, these uh, these sailors have been given to Paul and they are now part of the... Table, uh, they're part of the table company of the church.
5: I think we just need to pursue a more literal interpretation of the text and say that the throwing out of the wheat is biblical support for a gluten free diet.
3: <laughs>
5: <laughs> Sorry, you can no. edit that bit out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It goes into Brian's
4: great compilation that he would use as yeah, compromat exactly. on us all. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Occasionally
1: there'll be a snore, a sneeze, and then uh, James saying something outlandish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought you were going to go in a different direction, James. I thought it was going to be a liturgical comment about the disposition of uh, consecrated of a consecrated uh, host. I mean, what do you do with the leftovers? You throw them into the sea. That's what you do. Um, oh, <laughs> any any thoughts about any thoughts about the how, how do we take the? Are uh, we to understand this as a saved company of people? But the chapter, as Jeff said, is full of talk of salvation, and we. Quickly transfer that to being saved from the sea and saved from the shipwreck, but is is uh, Luke doing something stronger with it than than just that?
2: I'm tempted not to read what Luke is doing as strongly as that. Uh, it's one of those situations where uh, it feels like if he wanted to make that point as narrator, he could have done it in ways that wouldn't leave us asking the question at the end of this podcast. I've, I've generally read this as a, a typical meal that is modeled after the Eucharist, uh, as, as part of Luke's connection with the end of his gospel and the actions of Jesus, but also, uh, continuing the Passover themes that we've talked so much about. Particularly, Exodus 12 notes that uncircumcised foreigners are not allowed to partake of the Passover. Uh, But here, contrary to expectation, uh, if this is indeed a a Passover, Eucharist-esque meal, it's precisely the Gentiles who who are participating in it, uh, which would be consistent with that theme of uh, an expanded exodus that, in fact, includes the Gentiles.
4: Luke, I think, elsewhere in the Book of Acts, can bring together different senses of Um, the notion of salvation, for instance, in the story of the Philippian jailer. And it explored the overlap and the interplay, the blurring of the lines between a very immediate salvation from some negative outcome and the deeper salvation that is offered by Christ. And I think he invites us to explore the interrelation here. And as Trevor says, this is set up against the backdrop of the gospel and helps us to see something about what the church can be without necessarily saying that these people were saved. Um it might be clearer in the book of Jonah about the state of the sailors afterwards as they worship. But that isn't the case here. However, the Passover themes do suggest that just as Israel was saved from through the Exodus, and that didn't necessarily mean that they accepted the true meaning of that. Um, nonetheless that deliverance was something that had a deep import in bringing them to God. And this could have had the import, that same import, for people who had seen what had happened, took note of the signs, and responded accordingly. It is a Passover event for Gentiles. Are they going to respond in faith is the question.
5: I mean, if, if there is some liturgical, Eucharistic significance to this, then it seems an important um, fact that paul brings it to people's attention because as trevor was pointing out i guess this is amidst all the chaos of what what is going on and it feels like the uh the the mundane the um liturgical can easily be the first thing which goes out of the window in in times of crisis and urgency because anything else seems more important and um they would have gone without this meal had paul not um stressed it but in this time of crisis he's stressing to sort of do the basics um and and he's, he's saying that then you you'll be saved and make it through this time of complete uncertainty
0: thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast